This is Gene Delcord and Rachel Fields with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. President Joe Biden is headed to town this Wednesday. Biden will head to the Madison area, though specific details have not been disclosed. He'll appear here after delivering the State of the Union address the night before. It's a part of a travel blitz by the president, touting the economic growth he says he's achieved during his time in office. Political operatives working on Donald Trump's Wisconsin campaign team knew they had lost the state even as they continued to push narratives about a stolen election. That's according to an audio recording of a campaign meeting recorded two days after the 2020 election, which was leaked to the AP last Friday. The leaked audio is from an anonymous Republican campaigner in the call who told the Associated Press that they were frustrated with Trump's third attempt to run for president. Governor Evers announced the appointment of several top officials today. Former Milwaukee Health Commissioner Kirsten Johnson will head Wisconsin Department of Health Services, replacing outgoing Secretary Karen Timberlake. Johnson tells the Capital Times that she's looking forward to addressing health disparities faced by different communities of Wisconsinites. The Gov also announced the appointment of Dr. Joan Prince to the UW System Board of Regents. Prince, a former vice chancellor of UW-Milwaukee, was appointed by then-President Obama as a public delegate to the United Nations General Assembly. More Wisconsinites are dying in the prime of life, according to a new report that zeroes in on the state's mortality statistics over the past 20 years. The report from the nonpartisan Wisconsin Policy Forum found an uptick in mortality by 2021 for people in their 20s, 30s, and 40s. Among Wisconsinites aged 25 to 34, the overdose mortality rate increased more than 11-fold from 2001 to 2021. Two major drivers, according to the report, were COVID-19 and synthetic opioids like fentanyl. Death rates have worsened, especially for black residents. The overdose mortality rate for black non-Hispanic Wisconsinites increased more than 9-fold from 2001 to 2021. That's double the rate for all black Americans across the nation. Meanwhile, the homicide mortality rate for black Wisconsinites also significantly increased, more than the national average. In 2021, a black non-Hispanic Wisconsinite was nearly 32 times more likely to die from a homicide than a white non-Hispanic Wisconsinite, more than double the likelihood than in 2001. The same report finds more favorable outcomes for older adults. Rates Rates of death for those over age 65 have decreased in the last two decades, with a significant decline in deaths from heart disease, cancer, and stroke. An anonymous investment group is putting together a proposal for an agriculture-focused development project on Madison's Far East Side. The proposal would focus on developing about 70 acres of wetlands, synthesizing agricultural planning with housing and community development, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. The proposal would also center racial justice and the building of generational wealth. An online information session is slated for next week, Friday. With just over two weeks to go until the spring primary, early in-person voting kicks off tomorrow. Candidates for mayor of Madison, several Madison Alder districts, and Wisconsin Supreme Court justice will be on the ballot. And the top two finishers in these races in the primary will go on to compete in the spring election in April. For more information on early voting, check with your local clerk. Madison voters can head online to cityofmadison.com clerk. And now on to today's top stories. Across the country, states are looking to ban books from school classrooms that focus on topics like gender identity and race. Last night, 
Oh, excuse me. Late last month, state senators introduced a bill to ban books deemed harmful from schools and libraries across the state. Uh, the state. WORT producer Nate Wiggyhaupt has more. A newly introduced bill would remove any book that is deemed harmful or offensive to minors from public schools or libraries, and it would force public schools and libraries to enact policies that ensure that minors do not view, quote, harmful materials, end quote, on public computers. The bill was introduced to the state Senate at the end of January by three Republican senators, Andre Jacques of DePierre, Romaine Quinn of Cameron, and Corey Tomchek of Mosinee, none of whom responded to WORT's request for comment. Under the bill, public schools and libraries would have to take steps to prevent minors from accessing books or art that depict nudity, sexually explicit conduct, sadomasochistic abuse, physical torture, or brutality that are, quote, harmful to children when taken as a whole. The bulk of the bill concerns internet use by minors and would require institutions to either equip computers with software that blocks websites deemed harmful or enact a policy that keeps minors from gaining access to harmful materials. The bill would also apply to physical books. Under the bill, all schools would have to publish their curriculum and instructional materials to parents. If a parent objected to any material being taught, they would be able to pull their child out of class. Democratic Senate Minority Leader Melissa Agard of Madison says that she is opposed to the bill for a variety of reasons, including the increased strain it would put on teachers. But at the time when we're already not funding our public institutions adequately, um, how is it that overstretched teachers and librarians and, and folks are supposed to be able to even do this, even though I think it's a really bad idea? If this bill were to become law, there certainly is not uh, the resources available for for them to com- comply by it. Agard adds that schools already monitor what books and resources students have access to and that the bill would ultimately only harm students' learning. Books are a powerful way of telling the stories of um, the world around us. And kids of every background should have the right to learn about their culture and their identity and their experiences, as well as the culture, identity, and experiences of other people. And they should be able to see themselves reflected in those books, and they should be able to also see the experiences of other people who have been wronged as our society has grown and changed over over generations. So far, two groups have registered against the bill, the Wisconsin Library Association and the Wisconsin Council of Churches. The Wisconsin chapter of the National Association of Social Workers has also registered on the bill. Mark Herstand with the Wisconsin chapter says that the way the bill is written, it could be used to prevent students from learning about important historical events. So nobody wants kids to see porn, okay? So that let's just say that from the beginning. However, the way the bill is written, we have some concerns that it would limit the ability of students in the public schools, and you know, including the high school, to be able to get information about the Holocaust, slavery, the Middle Passage, things that have done, you know, but done to, to Native Americans and other holocausts that have taken place around the world. A similar bill was introduced last year, but that bill did not make it past committee. Reporting from the Wisconsin Examiner revealed emails from two of the authors of that bill and the topics they were seeking to ban, including gender identity issues and enduring racial and cultural stigmas. 
Last year, a suburban Milwaukee school district removed seven books from their school libraries, including Queer, the Ultimate LGBTQ Guide by Catherine Belge, and This Book is Gay by Juno Dawson, reports the Wisconsin Examiner. The district also changed their student privacy rights by beginning to email a student's parents their library borrowing records on a weekly basis. Deborah Caldwell-Stone is the director of the American Library Association's Office for Intellectual Freedom. She says the bill is part of a larger trend to restrict books from public schools across the country. We're seeing elected officials pick this up as a political wedge issue. And so we're seeing legislation like the bill you've referenced being introduced in states all across the country. We're tracking well over 100 bills that are attempting to limit young people's access to all kinds of information ideas, whether it's library books or Internet access or materials on the Internet, primarily these disfavored grounds, the, you know, the idea that books dealing with the uh, lived experiences of LGBTQ persons or black persons are somehow inappropriate or not to the taste of some groups in the community. According to a report from PEN America, a national nonprofit that advocates for free expression, 138 school districts across the country enacted book bans last year. That affected almost 4 million students. In Wisconsin, six school districts banned 29 books in the 2021-2022 school year. The report also showed that many of the books banned in that time period addressed LGBTQ themes or had prominent LGBTQ characters. Additionally, 40% of the individual books banned prominently featured a character of color. Caldwell Stone says that schools and libraries are already required by the federal government to filter harmful or obscene content, meaning that at best, this bill is unnecessary. Some of the definitions are problematic because they seem to be moving away from the constitutional guardrails that have been imposed by the courts to protect access to information about reproductive health, gender identity, and sexual orientation, and stigmatize that material in a way that limits young people's access to material that they actually have a constitutional right to view. The bill was introduced late last month and sent to the Committee on Mental Health, Substance Abuse Prevention, Children, and Families, where a public hearing for the bill has not yet been set. Senator Agard says that if the bill were to pass the Republican-led legislature, the bill would almost certainly be vetoed by Governor Evers. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. It's now 6.17 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. With just over two weeks until the spring primary election, we continue our coverage of the candidates running for Alder with a trip to South Madison in District 14. Home to parts of Fish Hatchery Boulevard and Park Street, the district will see We'll soon see two major projects aiming to uplift black Madisonians with the Black Business Hub and the Center for Black Excellence. The first of three candidates running in that district is Catherine Pedrosine, who spoke with WORT producer Nate Wegehout last week. So just to start off here, Catherine, why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself? Who are you? So just to give you a brief um, synopsis of who I am. So I am a 64-year-old black female that is a lifetime resident of the South side of Madison. And I definitely have a best interest in seeing our neighborhood and city thrive. I am a small business owner and community advocate. 
I do understand the history and the needs of South Madison and want to represent us boldly and effectively. I have raised four children in our vibrant and diverse community, navigating many of the systems and organizations in the city. As a single parent, I have experienced the hardships of finding quality, affordable housing, challenges of advocating for my children, I have managed to persevere, knock down doors of opportunity for myself and family, and these experiences are the ones that have motivated me to be an example for my children and a steward for the community. So I am now running for the Alder seat in our 14th district. And sort of going from there, why did you decide to run for Alder? So basically what made me decide to look into it was I was looking for housing, um, even though I am a housing provider, meaning I have apartments. I was looking for a location for an elderly relative. And because of what I learned in the process is what kind of jump-started me on my interest this way. We are, Our affordability has gotten very, very out of hand. And so we have a lot of people that are seniors, disabled, and just plain your run-of-the-mill people that don't have, like, incomes that exceed $80,000 a year. So right now over in South Madison, you're looking at a two-bedroom apartment that can cost you upwards of $1,800. Now, people on fixed incomes, it puts them at a very big disadvantage. And a lot of the programs and things that the city offers us right now are very difficult to navigate. So I'm looking into trying to advocate, assist, or maybe even revamp to make things a little more equal, equal, fair, inclusive, uh, just a few of the things that I'm trying to bring forward because that's what I'm not seeing in abundance. And now let's take a look at the city as a whole there. Now, you did mention uh, housing there is a pretty big issue. Uh, What would you say are the most pressing issues facing Madison that you would want to address as Alder? So, again, my most pressing issues um, would be the housing disparity. Although we have numerous issues that are facing us, so transportation is a very large one because, again, so we're trying to, from what I understand, what I've read, is we're trying to revamp our, um, our our city transportation, and we're cutting out a number of routes um, that just because, again, I am from South Madison, I know how people depend on those. And a couple of the routes I've noticed, and it's not just South Madison that's being, that they're taking some away. It's going to make it difficult for the people that depend on that public transportation to get to and from work to get to and from doctor's appointments, to get to and from places to try and get assistance with different things. So it's just transportation is going to be another one of those problems. But again, I'm going to bring it right back to housing because housing to me is the main venue for everything. If you don't have housing, it's difficult for you to access healthy food, nutritious food, because you have no place to cook it, store it, um, or anything else. Without housing, it's going to impact your health because you don't have a roof over your head. You don't have a place to go, so that's a stressful situation. So you're going to have those issues, and again, it's still going to come back to housing. It's going to come back to housing when it deals with employment. How difficult it is it to maintain a job and you don't have a place to lay your head in the evening or get up in the morning to bathe yourself and get yourself prepared to go to a job. 
So again, it all comes back to housing, and we have such an affordable housing crisis. We have such an increase in our homeless population, and it's and it's really now translating to not just single individuals that are homeless, but you're having whole families with children out there. This is Wisconsin, and it's cold. We need to try and figure out a way to make these programs more accessible to people. We have to not just make them accessible, but we have to make them pertain to the here and now. We need to stop disenfranchising so many people. What you need to really look at or what I'm really looking at is that I'm seeing people that are now living longer. Their population is aging. And what I don't see being taken into account is all these people that in their lives, while they worked their jobs before they became seniors and retired, they worked the low-end jobs. So they're the ones that served you your food. They, they cleaned your places. They were your janitors, your custodians. They were the people that, that did all the low-end jobs. So I don't understand how you expect these people now that had the low-end jobs for the low pay, the minimum wage, barely living wage, if that, to translate to now you think that Social Security is going to give them, what, $3,000 a month to live off of? No. They're going to give them a basis or a percentage of what they made during the time that they were actually out working a job and paying taxes. Now, what does that do to them? That puts them in a situation where they can't even afford housing. So we really need to stop and look at this and, and re-evaluate how we're going about giving these people and giving people in general assistance and help to make Madison once again that place that used to be the number one place to live in the country. And now we've spoken a lot about housing, and I want to stick with that for just a little bit longer here. What what sort of key initiatives or what sort of things would you like to see to bring more affordable housing here to Madison? So if I understand it correctly, being an older person, you get to sit and talk with the stakeholders that are the ones that are building these new homes and apartment buildings and, and such. Um, so you get to talk with the owners, you get to talk with the developers, and then, of course, you talk with the city, the ones that do the zoning and make all of the um, decisions on that. You get to have a say in that. As a property owner and a property owner that I own, I have apartments that I rent to people, I believe if I am able to keep my rental amounts reasonable, so that people can afford to live there. I would like to bring the things that I use to do that and my ideas that I use to implement that. I'd like to bring that to the table to see if there's something that we can utilize to make that possible for more people that are developing and building and creating so that, I mean, I understand we all want to make money. Although, do we want to make money off the backs of people that have no recourse? Is that really how we want to present ourselves as a city? Or do we want to be more of an inclusive place for people to come to? Isn't that more the message that we want to give? And maybe we can be an example for other places. And now turning our eyes on to District 14 now. Now your district is seeing two significant investments to support black Madisonians with the Black Business Hub and the Center for Black Excellence. What conversations have you had with the leaders and organizers of those groups? 
so I have not, to be honest, I have not. I'm aware of these, both of these, the Urban League putting in the um, the hub over there, and I'm very aware of Alex, Pastor Alex G. doing the Excellence Center. I like both of them, although I'm going to remind all the listeners that the Villager Mall was set up a few years back to be a place that was going to encourage people of color to go in and start creating their businesses, becoming entrepreneurs. I have someone that I know personally that did try to go in there and and be an entrepreneur and create their own business. And from what I understand, the pricing and the cost was so out of their reach that it was almost impossible. Although now we have businesses in there that I'm not going to put anyone throw anyone under the bus although there are businesses that do exist in the villager mall now that are not paying anywhere near those fees for monthly rental so my question is why why did we say that we're going to try to assist and then there was nothing done to promote that if anything the people that came for help and assistance were somewhat turned away or being directed into a way that was so difficult to navigate that they weren't able to do it. It's, it's, it's not necessarily that the opportunities aren't available. It's just that they make them very difficult to access and take them and build on them. I just, just am now um, hearing about the Own It program that's out there. I was looking at that the other night ago. I think that's a fabulous program that I'm going to try and get more information on since I'm just being aware of it. What makes me sad is that it's out there and it's set up to create generational wealth in people of color. Although what makes me a little concerned is why is it not being promoted on a larger scale to actually make the program succeed and in the process make your your people of the city, your your communities, successful. Not just certain communities, but all communities. I've been talking with Catherine Pedrosine, one of the three candidates running in the spring primary election for District 14 Alder. That primary election takes place on February 21st, with the 2023 spring general election taking place on April 4th. Catherine, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you so much for interviewing me today. I really enjoyed this, and I absolutely love your radio station. The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Gene Delcourt, here with my co-host, Rachel Fields. Thank you for joining us. As everyone in the UK seems to be either on strike or about to strike, today is a good time to recall the successful Lee Jeans factory sit-in by its mostly women workforce that started on February 5th, 1981. Feature contributor Harry Richardson has the story. For Joe Hill and Cesar Chavez, who fought in their own time. For our brothers and our sisters, up and down that picket line. For the unnamed and unnumbered, who struggle brave and long. Standing up and standing strong. Yesterday, February 5th, was the anniversary of the start of a historic 
successful sit-in at Lee's Jeans Factory in Greenock, Scotland in 1981. 240 workers, mostly women, stopped production during the long occupation. 20-year-old machinist Margaret Wallace recalled later, There was a build-up to it. We had an idea something was going to happen, but I don't think we expected what was to come. We were excited. It was just like a mission, and we went with it. The factory was profitable, but its owner, the American VF Corporation, had run out of the government subsidy they got to open in 1970 and wanted to move the factory to Northern Ireland in order to get a new public subsidy there. Sensing crisis, the workers offered to accept cuts to three days a week or job sharing, but they were ignored. The workers were angry. The main shop steward, Helen Monahan, ordered a prearranged plan to begin. Workers piled plastic chairs up against the door, locking management out. Catherine Robertson, then 19, said later, You didn't know things like this would happen. You didn't know it was going to be so big. By the evening of the first day, they realized they were not as well prepared as they thought. They had had nothing to eat for 12 hours. Margaret Wallace and a male colleague climbed to the roof through a skylight and shinned down a drain pipe. When they returned with 240 fish and chips dinners, police stopped them until they explained they were occupying the factory. Then the officers allowed them through. It was the last time they were unprepared. The next morning, workers at the nearby shipyard voted a weekly levy of 50 pence to support the Lee Jeans workers sit-in. Soon, every shipbuilding and engineering worker in the region was contributing from their wages 50p, or about $1.30 in today's U.S. currency. For seven months, the women kept the occupation going, covering 12-hour shifts. Many were young mothers. Half were the sole breadwinners in their family. Unemployment was 13% in Scotland as a whole, but 25% in Greenock and Port Glasgow. Margaret and Catherine traveled the country speaking to trade union groups and raising money for the sit-in. UK Labour Party leader Michael Foote pledged the party's full support, something unimaginable today. Journalist Ruth Weisart remembers that many top union leaders publicly supported the fight, but privately advised Helen to settle for layoff and redundancy deals because the workers had no chance. This was the time of Margaret Thatcher's attacks on unions. The National Steelworkers strike in Scotland had recently been defeated and a traditionally militant Chrysler car factory near Glasgow had closed without a fight from its unions. Support rolled in from across the country with many city trade councils taking steps to boycott the Lee Jeans brand. Scottish wholesalers agreed to mass purchase of the jeans if the strikers set up a co-op. One wholesaler offered to buy 2000 a month. Monaghan talked proudly about the way the workers conducted the strike. Workers regularly oiled and maintained the machines and protected one million pounds of jeans from theft. But she denies the strikers were militant, saying, We were determined. It wasn't easy. It had to be done. We started it, and we were very determined. We would be there until we heard something different. Margaret Wallace says other women facing problems should take heart from their action. You can win, she said. Stick to your guns, and don't be scared of management. In August of 1981, after almost seven months, a management buyout plus government pledges of assistance saved the factory and the women won back their jobs. Tragically, though, the victory was short-lived as the new management closed the factory in June of 1983 for lack of funds. Last year, the Scottish government marked the 40th anniversary as a historic labor movement victory. The local council held a dinner honoring the former factory workers. Guests were served you guessed it, 
fish and chips. Among the honored attendees was Margaret Wallace, one of the strike leaders. And that is our story for today. For the past is the past. I'm Harry Richardson. According to disciplinary records obtained by the Wisconsin Center for Investigative Journalism, senior police officers in Sheboygan routinely harassed female officers and new recruits, including sending nude photos to others. Additionally, the Sheboygan Police Department either bungled or deliberately covered up its own internal investigation. On today's 8 o'clock buzz, host Brian Standing spoke with Dee Hall, managing editor for Wisconsin Watch, about what they found. In this case, this is a, a yet another sort of personnel scandal that we've been hearing a lot about on Wisconsin Watch. What led to Wisconsin Watch requesting personnel records from the Sheboygan Police Department? Well, it was interesting because our reporter, Phoebe Petrovic, and uh, Maya Hilty, a reporter with the Sheboygan Press, had been getting some of the same information on background from individuals asking us to look into it. And so uh, since we, we work closely with the uh, USA Today Network on some other stories, they said, hey, let's, let's pair up on this one. And so we decided to do that. And in the meantime, they, the, the two of them obtained uh, hundreds of pages of internal records to detail. It ended up being three different internal investigations in the police department. And uh, so, so that's how the story came about. Uh, we finally got those records in uh, late 2022 and, and took several weeks to pull it all together for people. Now, aren't personnel records normally exempt from state open records law? How did your reporters get access to these particular documents? Actually, that's interesting. They aren't. It's a different process that has to uh, be followed when personnel records are involved, especially disciplinary records. You can obtain them, but the person uh, about whom the record is will be released has to has to be notified of that and given a chance to object. I, I'm not aware of any objection because these uh, records were in fact released. I will say they were heavily redacted, so there are aspects of the story we still don't know. And who were the officers accused of harassing behavior? So there were only two of them that were actually named in the documents that we got. Brian Prey and Nicholas Helland were named. There was a third name, Stephen Schnabel, who had been a training officer. We found out his name because he accidentally failed to redact his name from one uh, from some reports and then there was somebody named officer six all four of them were were found to have sexually harassed their colleagues what exactly were they accused of doing well it was a variety of things in the case of prey Helland, and officer six they were sharing you know nude and semi-nude photos of their co-workers either taken with or without their consent in in a couple of cases without their consent certainly shared without their consent we can certainly say that and uh, for Schnabel, he was making inappropriate, uh, he was having inappropriate discussions with trainees, flirty, you know, kissy face emojis, uh, suggesting that they should get together on a date. And at a time when he was a training officer and they were trainees. And so the power imbalance is obvious there. And, and it was a problem. What was the Sheboygan Police Department's response? What was their, how did they conduct their investigation and what consequences occurred to these officers as a result? So one thing we looked at is the, the department's own policies to see whether they followed those. And in some cases, they didn't appear to be following them, or at least not following what you would call best practices when it comes to such investigative internal investigations. For example, none of the people who were suspected of sexual harassment was placed on leave during the pendency of the investigation. That allowed, at least in one case, one of the officers to 
you know, basically retaliate to some extent uh, against one of the officers who'd complained against him. So in all, there were 10 people who were disciplined in some fashion and two who were counseled or admonished uh, over their behavior. The strictest punishment that that occurred was a two-week sus- unpaid suspension. And then they then it ranged down from there. And that was Brian Prey. He received the most significant discipline. So we're talking 12 officers out of 62 officers in the entire force. That's 20% of the, of the entire force. Is this indicative of a sort of widespread cultural problem? Well, it, it kind of looks that way. You know, again, a lot of this was redacted, so we were not able to see you know, the full extent of everything. But I, I will say that one one aspect of the story is that the head of the Human Resources Department for the city did end up quitting during the pendency of all of this because she felt like she had been in contradiction to their policies. Uh, she had been looped out of the entire uh, or most of the investigations. And she felt that there was to some extent a cover up going on. And so she has her own uh, state equal rights uh, division complaint against the city. And what about the the victims of this harassment? What what happened to them? So one of them did receive a $110,000 settlement and of course the city claimed no or you know admitted to no responsibility or wrongdoing in that case. Others were were also disciplined for their own behavior, um, which included some of the same stuff we've been talking about, sharing nude and semi-nude photos, either on duty or off duty, um, with uh, without the consent of the people involved in the photos. And so some of the, the women who were found to be, to have violated policies received punishments, including uh, loss of use of their cell phones uh, while on duty. And um, some were ordered to attend anti-harassment training, although ironically, none of the women was found to have violated their anti-harassment policies. So we did find some discrepancies in the way that the cases were handled. You know, several women lost their cell phone, female officers lost their cell phone privileges while on duty, uh, even though, uh, and, and none of the men did, even though a lot of this activity was taking place on cell phones, people sharing photos on their cell phones. And so none of the men received, did they receive sexual harassment training or other? No, that was the odd thing. I I don't, well, let's see. Now, I will say some of these officers, we don't know their exact names. We can't verify their exact names. So we refer to them as like Officer 6 and Officer 7. But there were, there. I believe at least some of them had to uh, attend anti-harassment training, but I'm not 100% sure. I'm just looking through our long, long list. There was so many (laughs) things that happened among all of these people, it's hard to keep track. But uh, let's let's suffice it to say there was some discrepancies in having women who were not found guilty of violating the anti-harassment policies were in fact ordered to attend anti-harassment training. And men who were found to misuse their cell phones were, unlike the women, or not ordered to give up their cell phones while they're on duty. So there, it was kind of a lot of dis, some discrepancies there. Now, you mentioned there's some uh, pending Equal Rights Division action here. What Can you tell us what that process involves and, and what when there might be results coming from that? Oh, that I can't tell you about the timing, but that was filed uh, by the head of the uh, former former head of the Human Resources Department. And she is claiming that she was retaliated against because she began advocating for 
a more vigorous investigation and more protection for the women who had complained. And so, and then she ended up resigning. So I don't know what the status of that will be. The settlement that was reached with one of the female officers was also the result of an equal rights division complaint that she had filed. And that's how it was settled is with a $110,000 cash settlement. Now, I mean, a lot of the investigations we've been talking about appear to be internal investigations by uh, the Sheboygan Police Department investigating itself. In some circumstances, like in officer-involved shootings, for example, there's automatically triggered an external investigation. Was there any external investigation done of these sexual harassment claims? The records indicate that the city initially did employ some attorneys to take somewhat of an independent look at the situation. But when the officer who received the settlement actually filed her equal rights division complaint, they decided to halt that process. So there was not really an outside look at what was going on here, at least not one that was completed and so, so yeah, that that's one of the other issues that happened here is sometimes you would have an outside agency look at some of these issues. Uh, the other thing you could have done and they didn't do was put some people on leave during the investigation while it was going on, and that was something that didn't happen. And then uh, separately, there was no criminal investigation or any really thought, it seems, given to the idea that what some of these officers had done actually might have violated the law. Um, You know, you're not allowed to take a a photo, even if a person knows you have the photo, you can't just share it with anyone you want, you know, without their consent or knowledge. So, you know, that's another thing. There was no criminal investigation to see whether any of them was, uh, you know, possibly uh, liable for any kind of criminal violations. And has anyone in the uh, city of Sheboygan Police Department or elsewhere in city of Sheboygan government acknowledged that there's a cultural problem here? Or is this another case where they're saying, oh, there's a few bad apples. Don't worry about it. it it's kind of a combination. I mean, they, they recognize that there were a lot of officers involved in this, but at the same time that this they draw, as as the chief said, hey, we draw from the human race. This is going on in society. One of the statistics in the story that really shocked me the most was that more than half, I think 71% of women who are police officers have reported being sexually harassed or even sexually assaulted on the job. Uh, that That's like uh, an astounding number, uh, even, and I think it was some somewhere in the category of like 41% of men. So it is apparently quite a widespread problem within law enforcement itself, not even just the Sheboygan Police Department, but it's, so it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a big problem. You know, you, they've got very stressful jobs. People can, you know, figure out ways to let off steam, but obviously this is not one of them that anyone should ever use. Yes, 41% of men working as police officers reported experiencing sexual harassment or assault. So, you know, this is so 71% of women, 41% of men. So it's obviously a problem within the profession itself. But, you know, in and here's how it played out in Sheboygan. With this and those event. are national estimates. Uh, the These are nationally, yes. Yeah, sorry, so. not not uh, not statewide or unique to Sheboygan, but nationally. So obviously, this is a profession that has a problem with this, uh, with sexual harassment. And so, you know, this is this is how it came home to roost in Sheboygan. And what follow-up are you doing uh, on this story? Follow-up. Well, we are continuing to pursue certain leads. Uh, I probably am not going to talk about them right here. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But there are aspects of it that are continuing to play out in in Sheboygan that I think will be of interest to people when we are able to verify those. 
Okay, we've been speaking with Wisconsin Center for Investigative Journalism Managing Editor D. Hall. You can read the full story at wisconsinwatch.org. D. thank you once again for joining us on the 8 o'clock buzz. All right, thanks a lot, Brian. Today, feature contributor Harry Richardson reviews two new movies on the small screen. Murder Mystery is a predictable and retro yet mildly amusing movie, while Riotsville, USA stands as a good documentary on the beginning of the modern-day militarization of the police. Did you notice anything out of the ordinary? But we didn't do this. Someone's trying to frame us. We do things together, so can we please just figure this out? It's just like death in the library. What happens in death in the library? They died. That was clip from the trailer for Murder Mystery, directed by Kyle Nochek. This is a mediocre, harmless comedy to watch some late Friday night when you don't have the energy for something serious. It is an unlikely story of a New York every-person couple. Ben Stiller plays a cop who has lied to his wife about making detective because lying to your wife and having it come back to bite you is supposed to be funny. Jennifer Aniston plays his spouse, a hairdresser. Her opening scene is with women at the hair salon, all saying how clueless men are because that's supposed to be funny. A lot of the movie is like that. Things that were stale in the 50s rom-coms are recycled as our standard murder mystery cliches, but given that, the movie is fairly funny with attractive if not very likable people. The good news is that Stiller has dialed down his character a couple of notches, and Jennifer Aniston is still, well, Jennifer Aniston. They play Audrey and Nick Spitz. Nick has finally bought tickets for their honeymoon to Paris, 15 years late. On the plane, Audrey meets a handsome, rich stranger, Charles Cavendish, Luke Evans. Charles takes a liking to Audrey and invites the couple for a weekend trip on the family yacht to Monaco. Nick refuses, but then sees their crummy tour bus loaded with whiny Americans and their rowdy kids and changes his mind. Once on the giant yacht, they meet a cast of snobs and odd characters. They include the family billionaire patriarch, Malcolm Quince, Terrence Stamp, his son, Tobias, David Williams, the billionaire's young fiancé, Susie Shiola Kutsuna, a famous actor, Gemma Atherton, a Maharishi, Enyel Akhtor, an African colonel, John Connie, a Formula One race driver, Luis Gerardo Mendez, with his Russian bodyguard, Olafur Dari Olafsson, the patriarch, stole Susie from Charles. Once they are all assembled, Malcolm unceremoniously announces that he is dropping them from his will and leaving everything to his fiancée. As the shock is sinking in, the lights go out, and when they come back on, there's an exotic but deadly dagger in Malcolm. The Spitzes, as the outsiders, become the main suspects and have to solve the murder to clear themselves. They say more would be spoilers, but there's nothing all that surprising in this pleasant enough predictable tale. Also predictable is that Netflix is coming out with Murder Mystery 2 soon. Now for something more serious, a new film on the militarization of the police. In these stage demonstrations, the men dressed in black will typify hardcore agitators. Action must be taken. And that was a clip from the trailer for the new documentary Riotsville, USA, directed by Sierra Pettengill. Riotsville takes its name from two southern fake towns, sort of like old movie sets that were set up by the military late 1967 and early 68 in an effort to train the police and military to respond more quickly and professionally to future riots and political protests. Ironically, one of the two southern bases the towns were built by was Fort 
Belvoir, after a Confederate officer, enslaver, and KKK member. The training happened after the Watts Rebellion of 65 and the Chicago Division Street Riots of 66. 1967, as the Johnson-initiated Kerner Commission was preparing its report, was dubbed the Long Hot Summer. It saw over 150 riots. The documentary shows military-produced footage and old TV news footage from the 1968 Democratic Convention police riots and lesser-known footage covering the 1968 Miami Republican Convention. The footage from Riotsville was occasionally surreal, with police and military arresting protesters who looted and burned stores on fake streets. The protesters were other military personnel, including a few African Americans, but mostly whites, some with wigs, presumably to look more like hippies. There were also memorable footage of Johnson speaking against the unrest and calling for the creation of a commission to study the problem with interviews of average Americans after watching Johnson. There was also some interesting clips from a TV show precursor to PBS that tried to tell both sides of the racial divide, including a mostly African-American congregation and their outspoken pastor in Detroit. The studio guests also included a few African-American men. No women were interviewed, and almost everyone in the TV studios smoked. Interestingly, the Ford Foundation withdrew its support for the series, and the shows ended. Riotsville, USA, is showing on Hulu, but you can see it on the big screen, with commentary afterwards by local historians Simon Bolton and Stu Levitan, this Wednesday at 6.30 p.m. at the Union South Marquee Theater. 1308 West Dayton Street, as part of the UW Haven Center Social Cinema Series. For WRT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was Nate Carlin. Special thanks to feature contributors Harry Richardson, Brian Standing with the 8 o'clock buzz, and Nicholas Leet for technical production. Oh, Captain, my Captain, Victor Boom Boom Calzoni engineered the show. Nate Weggehout produced this newscast. And Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Rachel Fields. And I'm your host, Gene Delcourt. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is the most freeform show on your radio dial, The Access Hour. Good night.